Get ready for some fun with America's favorite TV family on Darn It, Dad! Starring Brian Keith and featuring Paula Prentice as Betsy and introducing Lisa Loring as Pip. Honey Pip, I'm home and I've got great news. Hi, honey. Did you bring home more wine? Hey, Dad, what's the great news? You know that strip of vacant land out back where we have the brush pile? And where we buried Jay North after the chainsaw accident? We don't talk about that, dear. Get me two more glasses of Chardonnay. I'm building a baseball stadium there. It's only $73 million. Not again. Darn it, Dad. I'll get it all back in rentals and parking fees. The owner of the Akron Ground Dogs is moving his team to our yard. This is going to secure our future. Yeah, our future is hobos. This is why I drink. You might have to cut back a little. The early construction costs will be high, and then we'll have to pay for the ice-making equipment. Ice-making equipment? You know, it might be a hockey team. This is never going to work. We're going to be ruined, and I'm not going to be able to go to college. And I'll be a cocktail waitress and marry some guy named Earl who will be unfaithful to me and give me sexually transmitted diseases from strippers. All because you had to build a stadium. Pip, all I ask is that you believe in me. I'm a man. Therefore, I know what I'm doing. Maybe I can have a short, meaningless romance with one of the construction workers. Usually that dulls the pain. For a little while. (laughs) Meanwhile, here's a live show about other stadium projects. And now the mascot of the North Haven Gypsy Moths, Colin McEnroe. When I was a kid, my mother used to take me up to Fenway Park. And uh, being uh, the person that she was, she would never buy tickets. She would just show up at Fenway Park and expect to be let in. And then she would use her particular version of charm on some ticket agent. And somehow or other, we'd get pretty good seats. And she'd keep pointing at this forlorn boy over there and say, you know, he really needs to see the Red Sox. And the one thing that I never really thought about, and we were talking about this at dinner tonight, is when you're a kid, you don't think, well, where does all this come from? Like, who built this stadium? Where, what are the economics of this? I mean, when we're kids, sports are just there for us, and, and they're, they're there for us to love. But uh, in fact, they travel a pretty complicated road, particularly these days. And uh, so here in Hartford, uh, well, our brand-new yard goats start their season tomorrow. Not here, uh, as you probably know. We're about 20 years from the day uh, the Whalers left town. It was 19 years ago, right, guys? 19 years ago, the Whalers left town. A year after they left town, uh, Robert Kraft came down with a conversation about bringing the New England Patriots. We'll talk about all those things here tonight, but, I mean, probably we'll begin in particular with the Yard Goat story uh, as a way of getting into this topic. So let me tell you who's up here on the far right uh, is Oz Griebel. He is uh, the uh, head of Metro Hartford Alliance. And you're also on the stadium authority, right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, And then sitting next to him is the owner of the Hartford Yard Goats, Josh Solomon. And then uh, all the way from Holy Cross is uh, Professor Victor Matheson, uh, an an economist who specializes in the economics of some of the stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. Josh Solomon, just to get us going here, uh, most people know that there's been a little bit of a delay in the stadium and uh, the team is uh, starting on the road tomorrow in, in Richmond and given how cold it is here, you're probably actually happy about that. But how do things look? Are you going to, the anticipated home opening is May 31st. Does that still look real to you? I certainly hope so. <laughs> um, the, I think the ballpark is progressing well. Obviously, we're not the ones building the ballpark, but uh, it really is coming along and it, it, it's going to be a fantastic world-class facility. 
In Oz, you're not building the stadium either, but you have a, a lot of up-to-date information about it. I mean, May 17th, I think, is the sort of the construction completed date, right. which leads to a May 31st opening. Are you holding your breath? Or are you relaxed? Are you taking lorazepam about this? What's your... Well, I, I get, I'd make two comments. One is, uh, Josh is aware, uh, more than, than I am, this is a 25-year transaction, and the goal is obviously to have it open for May 31st, but it has to be looked at that this is being built not just for 2016 but beyond. Uh, the second thing, we had our most recent stadium authority meeting yesterday, and the sense of urgency and cooperation among all the parties is palpable, and I think that's a significant improvement for where we were in December. So as uh, Sean Fitzpatrick mentioned, it's not a given that May 17th will be there, but we're in a real horse race to get there so that the ballpark is open for that May 31st game. I'm going to ask all of you to do a little projection uh, into the future, and Josh, I'm going to have you start. Imagine it's five years down the road, and a pretty blue-sky scenario. Things are going as you hope they're going, which means that this is you know, a, a thriving and presumably profitable minor league baseball franchise for you. What is it for the city of Hartford and the surrounding region? In your best imaginings, what is uh, this community going to get back from your club? Just this past Saturday, we had a job fair where we had 1,800 people come to find 400 jobs that they otherwise wouldn't have. So that, that's kind of a more immediate kind of result. If I were to look out and um, five years, I would see that the ballpark really um, started a domino effect with the origination of multifamily housing, significant amounts of retail, and really kind of enlivening a neighborhood that for the past 50 years has been incredibly dormant and become a thriving part of the city of Hartford. Oz, I'm assuming that's pretty much a mirror of what your hopes are or your vision of, of a successful yard goats scenario. Uh, absolutely, and, and I, I, nobody is happier about bringing an amenity like a minor league baseball team, a double-A team, into the city of Hartford. You know, at the same time, I know there's some people here from New Britain. We hope that the bees get off to a great start. This is a great baseball area, and it's important uh, not only for entertainment but for economics. We were a little late to the party in terms of supporting this initiative, and our board took the position at the end that we would support the city moving forward on the basis that it will indeed deliver what Josh just referenced. The development of the so-called Dono project is absolutely critical. It's critical not only for the, amenity, for the development of that area, but part of the repayment of the bonds is dependent upon those adjoining sites becoming commercially viable. Why were you late to the party? Josh already knows. Well, I, he, yeah, <laughs> I'll emphasize again. This is a great amenity for the city of Hartford and the region. It's going to do all the things that Josh will talk about, has talked about and will talk about. What it does to the city finances, though, is palpable. And you cannot put your head in the sand in terms of the fact that it will add about with this additional $6 million bond that's floated somewhere around $4.8 million of additional financing to the city budget. That's not insignificant at a time when the city is struggling the way it is. All right, so Victor, it's, a, it's your turn. Uh, you look at a lot of these scenarios. Um, uh, a market exists if there's three cities and two baseball teams. Uh, it doesn't exist if there's three baseball teams in two cities. But basically, the market exists, right? Now, cities are willing to do things to get these things to happen. So as you're listening to the scenario sketched out there, what are your reservations, if any? Well, so I'm the economist here up, uh, up here, and I think I'm required by my profession to be dismal. 
And uh, so the dismal economist says, uh, yeah, it could be a very, very nice thing for people to go and watch games there. The question is whether you're going to develop enough ancillary activity around the stadium in order to pay off what turns out to be about five or six million dollars of, of payments that the city has to come up with for that, uh, for that stadium. And if we look at lots and lots of other cities around the, the country that have gone this direction, uh, very often those uh, optimistic and rosy scenarios have not come to pass, uh, even if the stadium uh, itself is a, is a really nice place to watch baseball. So Victor Matheson, the way that I understand this, facilities, arenas, whatever we're going to call them, stadiums, have become, if anything, more important than they used to be as pieces of these deals, right? I mean, we have one isolated case where the NFL uh, is going uh, out to Inglewood uh, and I guess pretty much building, the Rams are building their own stadium, taking another tenant in. But by and large, Every, it's like market by market, city by city. These deals do depend on some kind of public financing of stadiums. Stadiums now are more important as revenue generators just in terms of the ribbon advertising and the scoreboard and the presentation stuff that goes on in them. Is that the only way a, a city that wants something like this can get something like this? We can definitely see just in the growth of how stadiums are built uh, how much the game has changed here. Uh, for example, uh, back when they were the Rock Cats in uh, New Britain. Uh, the stadium that was built for them 20 years ago, that stadium cost $10 million. Uh, after inflation, that would be a $15 million stadium uh, then, and that was considered a very nice minor league stadium for a double-A team 20 years ago. Nowadays, that same stadium for the state-of-the-art and the sort of amenities that you would expect uh, for building a new stadium at double-A, now we're talking about a 65-ish million dollar stadium. So there's, there's one example there. Uh, a second example you alluded to as well. We have this issue with a team leaving uh, St. Louis, uh, the St. Louis Rams. They're leaving a stadium that's uh, only about 20 years old. As a matter of fact, they're leaving a stadium that is younger than Miley Cyrus, uh, yet that stadium is considered economically obsolete. And an economist wouldn't say at all that, uh, that you can't change your stadiums every 20 years, but the real question is who should pay for that? Uh, and as it turns out, uh, in many cases, we're not necessarily seeing public funding. Uh, the new L.A. stadium that is being built by Stan Kroenke in, in uh, Englewood, that is a 100% privately financed stadium. And uh, we also talked about the uh, uh, New England Patriots, who thought about coming out here to Hartford for a while, but uh, in the end, they moved back to uh, Gillette, and they built a new stadium with, again, all of their own money. The only public money in uh, Gillette Stadium was money to improve the infrastructure to give fans a little better access to the stadium, and of course, that's exactly the sort of thing that government should do for its businesses, make it easier uh, for customers to get there and, and employees to get to their businesses. So it can be done privately. We'll come back to the Patriots. Uh, it's a story all by itself. But, uh, you know, other than the Patriots, I mean, really, the, the thing that you're talking about right now with the Rams, that's kind of sui generis, isn't it? I mean, there, I, I don't know of anybody else who's doing anything that way. Uh, well, actually, where we just played the Super Bowl, uh, Santa Clara Stadium, uh, the Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, that is a stadium that was about 90% privately financed as well. Uh, we've seen a big move towards private financing since about 2008. That's, of course, exactly when state governments and local governments had significant issues because of the Great Recession. And at about that time, you saw a lot of uh, civic leaders saying, uh, it, it seems somewhat concerning to be giving significant handouts to, to uh, in the major leagues, obviously, to billionaire owners and millionaire players when uh, you are laying off teachers and firefighters and police officers. 
Victor mentioned the the Patriots Stadium, Oz, and you and I were talking about this. Um, actually, it was interesting the way that Oz phrased it. Oz used to be uh, in the banking business, and I, I couldn't remember when he arrived in Hartford, and he said, yeah, I lived through the Whalers leaving. I lived through the Patriots thing. Uh, so we think of this mostly in terms of uh, having survived certain things. So when the Patriots, I just... I couldn't remember all the details of the Patriots' proposal, but I looked up some of them. $375 million football stadium told, uh, paid for entirely uh, by taxpayers. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, Mr. Kraft would have also uh, had a chance rent-free to build a hotel on, on land that would have been uh, part of this complex. $176 million uh, 10-year guarantee of occupancy for all premium seats and luxury suites, payment of all general liability insurance, $15 million for a Patriots training facility, as I mentioned, the free land beneath the hotel investment, and the opportunity basically to run that stadium all the rest of the time so that if Bruce Springsteen played there, uh, Mr. Kraft would be in charge of that, uh, and any popcorn that was sold would also be something that he was in charge of. This was sort of an amazing deal. Even being as as limited as I am, I looked at that at the time, and I said, well, this just seems kind of crazy. I don't understand how it can possibly work. Oz, you're a banker, and obviously one of the things, or you were a banker, and one of the things you're really good at when you're a banker is just sort of looking at the numbers and trying to figure out whether something makes sense or not. I think we could agree that one didn't really make sense. I'd, I'd even make it more personal, Colin, because at the time, uh, Kraft was shopping the franchise not only to Connecticut, but to Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with Bank of Boston. Uh, we had a franchise, Rhode Island Hospital Trust in Providence, and we had the franchise here. And I got a call, as did my counterpart in Rhode Island, from the then CEO, Chad Gifford, said that if I wanted to stay with the Bank of Boston, that I would not support any such activity in Connecticut. I think the, I said this to you offline, um, I never really believed that Kraft was bringing the Patriots here. I don't believe Tagliabue at the time the commissioner of the NFL was ever going to leave, let Kraft leave the Boston television market. You may recall, and the Whaler fans who are here, that was a direct reaction to the decision by the then infamous Mr. Kermanos to move the Whalers to Raleigh. So I think there were a, a whole bunch of bad reasons for that. I know, understand Governor Rowland why he wanted to do it, but it never made sense. And I would say that we're probably better off as a city for not that, that facility not being built where it was going to be built, and that what came out of that, the Science Center, the Convention Center, the downtown housing, makes, makes the city of Hartford a better city today than if there had been a cement stadium there. So we'll be right back. We're live here at Watkinson School with a terrific panel. Yeah. I want to get our Whalers uh, people into this conversation because it's such a big component. So this is Jeremiah Raffini. He runs a a blog about the Whalers. Um, And I was talking to these guys at dinner. And it is amazing. I mean, Whalers fans... I don't think there's anywhere in the world that is as loyal to a franchise that has not existed for 19 years. You guys have multiple websites. You have special cable access shows. There's, I think, a fan appreciation night coming up on the 13th. Uh, there's the, and and the, the merchandise, as we know. In fact, Jack, you, you're in, in London, and there's people walking around all the time in whaler shirts um, in London. So Jack flew all the way from London to do this uh, tonight. So... Um, First of all, is it, Jeremiah, hard to listen to this conversation about the yard goats when what you guys really want is to get the whaler magic back? 
I don't think so. I, I am, you know, there's some serious reservations I think everyone in Hartford has had about the process. Uh, but overall, you know, the, I think the intangibles are a big thing, and that was something we lost with the Whalers. The term 169 petty fiefdoms gets thrown around, and I always saw the Hartford Civic Center and the Whalers games as the one time when everyone from all 169 towns was in one place, saw Hartford as their capital, saw a symbol of Hartford that they identified with, and I, I think we lost that, and I don't think the yard goats is on the same scale, but it's something people identify with, and it's creating an interest outside of Hartford in Hartford. That's a huge thing that I, I don't think you can put a number on that. Um, maybe pass the mic over to Jerry sitting next to you, and this is something you guys were talking about at dinner tonight, but you believe that there is interest from other franchises, other NHL franchises, to come here, that they've even been really looking at Hartford. Yes, we've, we've heard over the past year specifically that there have been teams visiting Hartford to look at the XL Center and to see what's going on in the city of Hartford. Uh, there's so much going on that it is attracting uh, specifically Carolina, which would be interesting to come back here, and Mr. Carmanos, uh, to come back to Hartford. Uh, Peter and I at length have talked to people in Hartford that have seen the NHL here uh, looking at Hartford as a viable relocation site. Um, and just, I want to get Peter in here too, as long as we're getting all of you. So the other thing you guys are telling me about is, I'm like, I knew that there was this incredible persistence of Whaler iconography. I don't think I understood how big it is. Like at one point in the NHL shop in New York, yeah, yeah tell that story. Uh, yeah, I actually do check in uh, when I go into New York. I always pop into the NHL store and I, I go bother the people that work there and I say, I know you got a list and I know the Whalers are on it. Where are they? And they kind of look around and they go, well, unofficially, you know, they're second, they're fifth. But every time I go there, they're in the top five to ten. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's an important thing. I, I can honestly say that if the logo wasn't as impressive as it is, uh, we probably wouldn't even be here today because the logo has really carried this team over the last 20 years because you see it everywhere you go. So Peter Good, uh, who did the logo, I hope you're listening uh, to this show here. This brings up a couple of things. So Oz, we've got all the development in the Nodo area that, that Josh has been talking about, but you've also got this central thing, the XL Center, right. which I think we would all agree, agree right now is insufficient for any of the tasks it's being asked to do. It's a 35-year-old facility that was retrofitted with boxes after the uh, sky boxes after the roof caved in in 78 or 79. So we all know that the facility was built, restrooms and everything else were built for one level of attendance. And then when, we, when it was expanded, that the infrastructure, concession stands and restrooms and the like did not follow. So uh, and everyone in this room knows that Mike Freemuth, who's the head of CRDA, is working actively with the Malloy administration. Uh, to determine what can be done uh, with that stadium. Uh, now there's been about $60 million put into the facility over the last two or three years uh, with a new scoreboard to make some improvements to the uh, to concession area, some improvements to the, to the restroom facilities. Uh, but it's not, it's not available, that, uh, it's not ready, as you just said, Colin, for prime time. He has active negotiations going on with the University of Connecticut, which has to be, a critical, has to be the tenant in that building, and it's, uh, we've got union issues in terms of the cost of doing a, a, an event in there, whether it's a UConn event or a concert. Uh, it's a very competitive marketplace. When that facility was built just on the concert side, you didn't have the casinos. And, and so some of the issues that we're facing right now are very different uh, than they were 35, 40 years ago when that facility was built. 
the fact that UConn is playing hockey there, I mean, I've talked to Jerry and, and others, that's a big step forward. Mm-hmm. It, it's not professional hockey at the NHL level, but to, the, the, the two seasons that have been played down there, if you're downtown on a UConn hockey night, it's not the heyday of the Whalers when you had twelve and 13,000 people down there, but there's six and 7,000 people coming down regularly for the BC games. That's a step in the right direction, and ideally would be an impetus to get the additional funding that's going to be needed for that facility. Yeah, and Jack, would you mind bringing the microphone just back over to Jeremiah for a second? I want to ask a question about that. Because this, it's back to the question that I was asking Victor before. I think you probably have found this out too as you try to pin things down here. Like, what does it cost to get the XL Center ready for, for anything? For example, I think in 2005, Northland was talking about how they needed $250 million right. to get it ready for the NHL. They said, give us $250 million, we'll have it ready for the NHL. Then I think there was like a $125 million proposal. Was that the Baldwins? I can't, who was throwing that it's, one around? You know, the original, that was really the contention that happened with Carmanos was over. It was in the ballpark of 125 150 for a modern arena. It jumped up to 250. Howard Baldwin pitched a plan that never got fleshed out that was considerably less. And I think where it stands right now would be $250 million to really do a complete retrofit of the, the current facility. And that would be just about NHL standard. Right. So uh, given the fact that we've eliminated our state beekeeper, probably there isn't $250 million uh, right now to do this. Well, if you had the beekeeper back, I think you yeah. could generate enough honey. Yeah. That would ge- no, they, that's over in, in New Britain, actually, is the beekeeper now. Um, Josh, let's, get, let's talk about another thing that came up during the Whalers conversation, which is the logo and the incredible affection that people have for the logo. I mean, everybody here has got a story about it. One thing that we didn't understand, I think, in Hartford is how the businesses run these days. So you guys went in there, I think, with kind of a plan, some kind of plan, and there are people now, like the Whalers logo was you know, very charmingly designed and memorably designed by a Connecticut graphic artist, Peter Good. That's not the way it works anymore, right? There are like people who do this, and the way the merchandise looks is really important and not left to chance, I think. You're absolutely right. I think one of the things that, you know, uh, uh, some of you may know, we went out and we did a whole campaign to name the team, and we ended up getting, I think, 6,000 entrees. But there's, there's a group that came in. We had a marketing group out of California come in and do a number of focus groups with folks in the city and try to really understand kind of what resonates, who the rival cities are. And they kind of helped quarterback um, with a, a guy who's kind of the guru of minor league baseball who we've brought on, a fellow named Chuck Domino, who's kind of led some of the most successful minor league baseball teams in the country. And it's a major part of creating a successful brand that is, uh, is going to have some legs. So we decided, the great citizens of this area decided on the name, which I think is awesome and fun and funky and really has resonate, resonated with people and has led us to being the um, generating the highest sales for any minor league baseball team in the country since we came out. And that's a huge part of... Uh, of kind of building our brand and recognition and whether you saw our guys on, you know, the Today Show or Sports Center, it's, it's really playing out and playing out with kind of young demographic. And it's a big part of the success 
that we'll have here in Hartford. So, yes, important and not left up to your kid who's pretty good with a pad and crayons. Well, so just think about this for a second. So at times, uh, the number two selling NHL jersey belongs to a team that hasn't shot a puck in 19 years. And right now, the hottest minor league baseball merchandise comes from a team that hasn't thrown a pitch yet. Uh, so there is, there's something going on here. But just to sort of stay with that for a second, Josh, part of the idea here really is that there are people who will buy a Montgomery Biscuits hat who have never been to Montgomery. We, we have sold merchandise in all 50 states and in, I think, 19 different countries. We have uh, pictures of people at the Vatican on the Great Wall in Jerusalem. I mean, literally, it, 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 it's an amazing thing, and people have really taken to it. They take pictures of themselves, of their dogs, of their kids, of everybody with their yard goat gear. So it's pretty exciting to see them kind of sending us in all that, that logo, and they're fired up about the team coming. Josh, one thing that I do want to say is that I, I, like some of the other people here, had some problems with the price tag and some problems with the way that this was all uh, accomplished. But, I mean, the only moral, ethical, and decent thing to do is to become a rabid Yard Goats fan, which I thoroughly intend to do, and I'll buy one of the stupid hats, and I'll be there. And Because, I mean, obviously, we really do want this to be a a huge success. One of the things that may be a little bit challenging uh, for people who haven't rooted for a minor league baseball team is the fact that the roster isn't maybe entirely stable, that the Rockies will have something to say about who's around uh, playing at any given time. Is there anything you can sort of say to people to kind of psychologically Get, I mean, how do you root for a minor league team that's connected to a franchise that's, you know, so far away geographically as to be almost mythical to many people here? How, how, how do you encourage people to make the psycholo- psychological bond that being a fan involves? Well, I think there's a, a, num- a number of things that we can do and will do to get the community to know our players, both um, in the Latino community as well as the African-American community, and, uh, and get them out and doing things, clinics with kids, talking in schools. Um, and to a nine-year-old kid, it really doesn't matter. They come in the uniform, and they're a professional athlete, and um, nothing makes a kid's day like getting a ball signed or an autograph or something at a ballpark. I know we all have those memories. And I think a big part of the folks who simply want to watch Major League Baseball, I think they have that opportunity and, and they can mortgage their homes and go to a Sox game. Um, for, for the rest of the folks out there who want to go see what is incredibly competitive baseball where you have the likes of a David Ortiz or a Bagwell or Clemens or a number of those guys earlier in their career, you get a chance to see them when they're just a normal guy and who will sign autographs and be there for them. So I think in a lot of ways you can build a closer bond to the players um, now before they've been paid the hundreds of millions of dollars than when they make it to the club, parent club. We're going to take a break right now. We'll come back. We're live, recording live from Watkinson School with this great panel. All right, audience. Woo. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me, Kion Wolf, with special help from our friends at Event Resources. 
Also thanks to Jack Doyle and Wendy Avery. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Liute. For show pages, articles, and aerial shots of Here and Now Stadium, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, what's the point of poetry? And now, back to Colin. So, is there anybody over on your side with their hand up? It's not just a graphic designer asking, but why didn't you just go to Peter Good to get a logo? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what what we did is we looked at the most successful teams in minor league baseball, and there was one group that really was the lead marketing group for all of them, um, and that that's how the decision was made. It's kind of a science now, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if it's if you met these guys, you'd know it really isn't a science. <laughs> but um, but 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 they're actually they're very good at what yeah. they do. But, I mean, maybe, Victor, you can comment on this a little bit, too. It is a science more than it was before, right? This is not, I mean, minor league baseball is not, as we said before, some kind of folksy Bull Durham kind of operation. This is an operation where they, they think pretty hard about every move they make. Think about all of, the, uh, all of professional sports, from the minor leagues all the way to the bigs. It's a completely different world than it was uh, was 10 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Here I'm from Holy Cross. Uh, I, I already, in, uh, you know, as a mere college professor, make more than Bob Cousy, one of our great alumni and the great first great point guard in, in the NBA. You know, I'm just a professor, and I, I make more than Bob Cousy ever made. And, and uh, boy, uh, I, I'm not making more than that number one draft pick coming out of the, uh, the college th- this year, am I? Yeah, so the numbers have changed. Um... So sorry about that, Mr. Cousy. But, um, all right, so questions. Jack, do you have somebody up there? Just a couple comments about the Whalers. I can't help myself. You know, I, I was a big fan. I had season tickets, and it's easy to romanticize about the whale. So I'm all, I'm all with it. I do that with my own kids. <clears throat> but as I remember the last couple years, we had tickets on the ice, and there were $52 for each seat, and then you add parking and food, that was a very expensive night in the early 90s. So I can only imagine what that would cost today to go down to a Whaler game. And then we had a star, Brendan Shanahan, who we got when we traded away Ron Francis, this hometown hero, who demanded a trade during the season. He just stiff-armed. And then we had an owner who was complaining in the Hartford Current nonstop about how much money he's losing. So I just sort of, I kind of forgot all that, but I still romanticize about the Whalers all the time. And we had a general manager, Brian Burke, who wouldn't play the Brass Bonanza, who, which we all joke about today. So it's like we're kind of, we kind of forget how painful it was those last couple of years. But I really hope the Yard Goats do well, and I want to thank you for making this serious investment in the city. I know we're focused on should the city have done that, but really a major investment. And, and I'm just curious, again, how, how are you going to market it to the, to the state? Sure. I think to your comment about the, the price that people pay for minor league baseball teams 20 years ago is far different than today. Um, so the economics have clearly changed. I think one of the things that we're doing is we spent a lot of time working with uh, Oz and, and the rest of folks in the city to ensure that there would be affordable parking so $5 parking. Our average ticket price, I think, is like 10 bucks 
So it's less expensive than taking your family to a movie. Um, and I think having, uh, so, so I think affordable family entertainment is, is really the major pull. So I, I think that's going to be a draw. I think the other thing that I just wanted to make sure that I, I was able to mention is one of the big goals for us is to engage the kids of the city of Hartford. And so what I always like to say is, you know, we're running a, an internship program for kids, 30 kids from the city during the year, where we're teaching them about all of the careers in baseball where you never put cleats on and never swing a bat. So exposing kids to all of the opportunity around baseball that has nothing to do with playing, whether it's marketing, human resources, or culinary work, or field work, or what have you. But I think opening people's eyes to what really behind the scenes goes on in baseball, in minor league baseball particularly, is really what we're pushing for. So we're going to have things, you'll be closer to the, the players than at any other minor league ballpark. Um, you're going to be able to see the guys working out, hitting in the batting tunnel. So I think what our real draw is, is really personalizing the experience of a professional sport. For people, both on the field and other things that are affiliated and associated with it. Yeah, good. Okay, oh, yes. Yeah, so let's hear. Um, and maybe you yeah. can introduce yourself. Yeah, because- sure. I'm uh, Mickey Herbert. Uh, for ten years, the first ten years of the uh, Bridgeport Bluefish baseball team, I owned that team from '96 to 2005. So I'm getting a real sense of deja vu. This whole discussion, but. 20 years back and now 20 years forward. We had a blighted area just south of 95 and south end of Bridgeport, really blighted. Strip joints, manufacturing companies have been vacant for decades. And actually, little known fact, Donald Trump bought up that land. And uh, he bought it up because, I don't know if you remember, but uh, John Rowland tried very hard to put a casino in Bridgeport. And uh, that was where it was going to be. And it was going to be a Trump casino. When that fell through... Trump never paid taxes on the, the site, so our mayor, Ganim was able to negotiate the purchase of the property from, from Trump for the forgiveness of taxes that Trump never paid. Probably not, not that great a deal that Donald Trump made way back then. But anyway, we built this stadium, and it, uh, I really do have a sense of deja vu because it was all about affordable, enter, affordable family entertainment. We had a marvelous beginning, uh, several years of sellout uh, crowds, and it was, um, in fact, in the state legislature, was, uh, legislators used to have Bridgeport envy of how well things were going there. And interestingly enough, from an economic point of view, um, the stadium cost $20 million, uh, not, quite a, not nearly as nice as the new stadium here, but um, it was actually like a lot of nice stadiums built at that time. The governor negotiated $10 million to be contributed by a, a European pharmaceutical manufacturer, Zurich Re, who agreed to give $10 million to the city to build the ballpark in return for a, basically $180 million of tax breaks for putting their North American headquarters in Stamford, Zurich Re. Now, I will say that Bridgeport, some 20 years hence, I think is finally starting to uh, have the type of development both in that area and in the teardrop downtown area that I envisioned starting way back in 1996. So I'm, I'm just suggesting don't expect change overnight. Some of this may take a long time, but it, th- that whole area around the ballpark now is really, uh, really quite impressive. Uh, I will say that in, we're in the Atlantic League, the same league now that the New Britain Bees are in, 
that there are challenges with urban baseball that should not be minimized. In our league, uh, the Newark team, which is clearly an urban team, uh, ultimately failed, and that ballpark, which was built in the year 2000, 99-2000, is now being torn down in downtown New Haven. The Camden team left Camden, New Jersey, to come to New Britain. So I would say you, th that's an issue. And it's also an issue in Bridgeport because, frankly, the team in Bridgeport, little known fact, has never made money. So I never say that again, Mickey. The, the team has never made money. Okay. The ownership. Of, and you can go into lots of explanations why. Didn't matter to me at first until I started running out of money. Um, but I'm telling you that I think the investment that the city made and the state made was a terrific investment in affordable family entertainment in Bridgeport. And I think you've said enough um, about it from an economical point of view. I think you might agree with me because the city and state put in relatively little money. However, I would caution um, that from the ownership perspective, it is a real challenge. And I applaud you, sir, for getting in and agreeing to do this. I hope you do well. I can tell you that... Um, Urban baseball is not easy, but uh, it really has made uh, Bridgeport special. After the honeymoon period was over, we ran into some real problems. Governor went to jail. Mayor went to jail. <laughs> we had the dot-com bubble burst. Whatever happened to the Trump guy you were talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, hey, Mickey, could I, could I ask you one quick question here? Um, was the Bridgeport team always not affiliated with a major league team? Yes, just like the New Britain team will yeah. be now. So, so that's a little different, too, and maybe you could just say something about that. So, in other words, Josh, I'm assuming, do the Rockies pay the salaries of the players? And yeah, I mean, I, I think the economics are vastly different. Yeah, I agree. In terms of affiliated baseball and non-affiliated baseball. Alyssa's got her hand up here. We might have to end on a negative note. Thank you for um, allowing me to ask the question. I'm one of those Southenders that were the naysayers, the I told you so crowd, and um, as far as the stadium financing. My fear is the stadium's built. Um, we're going to keep having negatives crop up, extra money. We've got the $5 million extra bonding. Now we're hearing there's another $10 million that were, were unexpected costs that are going to be announced that hasn't been reported anywhere. That's, nah, you're nah, hearing but that. There's, that. There's other costs expected, okay? Well, there are. Um, and we just learned that the admissions tax is not going to be given back to us. Um, for that was never a reality. Remember, that was never a reality to begin with, Alyssa. Uh, Mr. Griebel, it's in the bonding Oh, I know what's in the bonding. In the I'm well aware ordinance. of that. But it was okay. never a guaranteed thing to begin with. But that's how the bonds are being Correct. sold. That's right. Okay, that's kind of false bonding. Okay. Anyways, that aside, what I'm concerned about going forward is you're going to keep having negatives, small negatives about costs. Um, I heard the police contract, you know, the city has to pay for that. Next year, we're going to have terrible bonding problems. So what I want to know is on a positive note, while we're having negatives about the stadium and the financing and the bonding, as the team goes forward, isn't there something you can do, uh, Mr. Solomon, about, like, the brewery, have a Yard Goats brewery, help that get going? What is your family doing to, with a store, with the other development? I'd love to see, other than all this baseball talk, I, I enjoy baseball. I'm looking forward to you being successful. But what else are you doing to make the development or other positives come along for it? Thank you. <clears throat> Let me just first say that, we moved a successful business to an area that 
had not been touched in a very long time. Second, you talk about other things that we plan on doing for the city. We are going to be actively engaged in bringing in shows outside of baseball in which we share the proceeds with the city of Hartford. We actually uh, have offered to invest to build a brewery with Kurt uh, in that area. It happens that we don't control that land, and so we even put forth a proposal to do that, um, but it wasn't granted. So if we're given that, we're, Kurt knows we'll invest the capital with his business as well as helping with the real estate. So we're very committed. We just signed a 25-year lease with the city. We are going to be here for a very long time, and we're going to be active in the community and look for ways that we can help build Hartford. All right. How about a big hand for all of our panelists? Victor Matheson from Holy Cross. Josh Solomon from the Yard Goats. Oz Griebel from Metro Hartford Alliance. And Event Resources. They're the best. Thank you, Watkinson. Thanks for a great season. You know that vacant lot back in the woods? Oh, where we buried Dave. We don't talk about that, dear. I'm building another stadium. Come on, Dad. What about my education? It'll be a cheese-rolling stadium. We can use local cheesemakers. I'm going to need a bigger bottle of Chardonnay. (laughs) 